0: Olive Tree Church podcast channel. Whether you are listening in from our beloved Durban, South Africa or from further away, we trust you feel welcome and included in what God is doing in our community and that you feel inspired by today's message.
1: Nats, um, thanks. Yeah, I'm just as excited to tell this story. Really can't wait to get stuck into it. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Paul and, and I'm dying to tell you this, this really awesome story out of John. But just a thought that occurs to me before we ever look at a Jesus story, and particularly this one, uh, is the two errors that we all seem to make um, when we're thinking about Jesus, the man. Those who don't believe in the fact that Jesus is God tend to make the wrong assumption and assume that Jesus is too similar to us, right? That he's this, maybe he's a great prophet, a great moral teacher, uh, someone who maybe is part myth, part just normal human being, and miss the fact that this is the God of the universe doing really significant stuff. That's one error, but there's another error that's the opposite, but actually equally damaging, and it tends, as far as I can see, to be made by believers. And that is not that we think he's too similar to us. Actually, believers end up making the error of thinking that Jesus is too different from us. Here's what I mean. Um, As I'm reading a Jesus story, as a a Christian, I should actually be looking at him and going, this is a, a human being, in many ways, just like me. Because if I don't think that, if I glaze over and start to assume I'm just being told a a Sunday school story uh, that's sort of very theological and not very practical, I'm gonna miss all the interesting human dynamics that are going on. I'm gonna miss Jesus' motives. I'm gonna miss his personality. And when we lose the personality of Jesus, we lose so much of what's beautiful about the gospel. Uh, Not only am I likely to misunderstand Jesus if I think he's too different from me, you're actually very likely to misunderstand yourself. See, as a believer, you are apparently very similar to Jesus, that you are called to do very similar things to him, that you're called to react to this world in very similar ways to the ways that he reacted. And so as we read this story, I'm going to encourage you, if you are a skeptic, to recognize that this very human drama involves, as its main character, the God of the universe, who set this planet spinning and has kept it spinning ever since it started. But if you are a believer, if you have accepted the claims of Christ, if you've potentially heard these kinds of stories many, many times, I'm going to encourage you with me to peel back some of your theological education and just see this as a human story and start to recognize the personality of the man who's operating in the midst of it and his mom. Because this is a great story. This is the story of Jesus at a wedding. And it's the first time we see him do a miracle. Um, we've, been, we've been loving this story for ages, but I just want to tell it to you. We're going to read through the passage that comes out of John chapter 2 uh, and see what we can find there. Okay, so in John... Chapter 2, uh, we hear that the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, uh, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. So they're part of the extended uh, family, clearly. Jesus has some connection to this family. His mom, as was so brilliantly told, we'll see in a moment in the Chosen series, is kind of a family friend. Um, and so they head to the wedding celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine this is such a big deal. We really mustn't miss what a big deal this is. Uh, A wedding these days is sometimes a little fraught with family tension, but in this era, even more so. Even if this wasn't an arranged marriage, and it may well have been, but even if it wasn't an arranged marriage, the fact that the two people getting married maybe loved each other and wanted to be with one another was not the only reason this wedding was taking place. That's one consideration out of many in this era. suitability of the match, the the way the two families felt like this would be profitable to them and and advantageous to their kids, the social standing, all that other stuff was hugely at play in a marriage. And at the wedding feast, there's also all these other kind of airs and graces that need to be observed. The, uh, The sort of chief guest of the wedding would generally have been some leading figure in the neighborhood. So you've got families who are sort of checking one another out. You've got social status busy being observed and kind of Tested to make sure that everyone is behaving correctly. Then often you'd end up with a rabbi there as well. Jesus would have been a travelling rabbi, and so everyone's a little nervous. What's the rabbi thinking of what we're doing? There's a huge amount of tension. It's it's hugely fraught, and the only thing anyone had to drink was wine. This wasn't like one of the options at the cash bar at the wedding you go to from your cheap mates. No, this was the only thing and the sort of main event. So for Mary to come and say to Jesus, "They have no more wine," she's letting Jesus know there is a. Domestic catastrophe about to take place here. This couple is going to be shamed. These families are going to potentially rift over this. There's a crisis on the horizon. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied, Um, which is amazing. Jesus is putting a boundary in place. Well, this it's on them. This is dreadful for them, but it's on them. Um, My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And I'm just so taken by the, um, the intimacy in this moment. There, there's like trust. Uh, Mary knows Jesus, knows not only his power, but most importantly, um, knows his personality. See, that's the big thing. When we get back to the story, you're going to see in just a second that Mary changes the mind of God, or at least appears to. Jesus gives her the opportunity to influence him. Maybe that's the better, better way to say it that he allows himself to be influenced by her. What influences God? What influences people? We're going to investigate that in more depth in a moment, but I just love the intimacy here, and I suspect that, yeah, Mary knew that he was powerful, but more importantly, Mary knew what he was like. Mary knew his personality, and she's got so much trust in his personality that she then says what she's about to say. Let's see what happens next in the Scripture. Um, So she tells the the servants, do whatever he says. Then Jesus sees standing nearby six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons, so they're big. Uh, Jesus tells the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and um, take it to the master of ceremonies. As I've mentioned, the master of ceremonies isn't someone sort of in on the problem. It's important to feel the tension here. Um, This isn't a kind of chilled out family wedding where we can say, hey, everyone, we're in a little trouble here. Let's all band together. Let's, you know, Many cool weddings during the lockdown period have had a, an element of that feeling to it. Like, well, let's make the best of it and do it over Facebook and let's all work together because we love this couple. Remember the social setting here. Remember how... Frigid some of these relationships would have been, how tense. And uh, the master of ceremonies wasn't in on the joke. He wasn't in on the problem. Um, and he's a person of, of power and influence. And so it's terrifying, right? So the servants follow his instructions to take water that they've just dipped out of a foot-washing, ceremonial washing jar. When the master of ceremonies tasted uh, the water that was now wine, he... Um, next slide, please, Dahlil. Um, not knowing where it had come from, obviously the servants knew, so the servants are freaking out knowing what's gone on here. Uh, he then called the bridegroom over. And um, whoever was aware of the impending problem must have been shaking at this moment. Right? What's, the game is up. Like We've been busted. And he's drunk this stuff and now called the bridegroom over. You know, Oh dear, it's all come out. But instead of punishing or shaming or mocking the guy, he does the opposite. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this actually always what happens when God gets involved in our story? We end up getting not just not what we deserve, but the opposite. And he says, a host always serves the best wine first. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, um, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now just amazing. The miraculous sign of Cana, this is now John narrating what he witnessed um, in Galilee, was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's just hold, whenever you see the word glory in scripture, you really need to take note. When you see fire leading the Israelites by night and a cloud of smoke by day, it's the glory of God. When you see Moses on the mountain and having to avert his eyes from just the The glory of God, the weight of the presence of God is called the glory of God. This is what's going to light up the universe when all things are made new and we no longer need the sun. The glory of God is potent. And what John is narrating here is that at some random provincial wedding where a bunch of family members avert a near disaster, the disciples who worked out what was going on, the disciples who didn't make the error of thinking he was too different from them, but also didn't make the error of thinking he was too similar to them, who worked out what he was, realized that this little moment, this little wine production moment revealed the glory of God. The glory of God that is so potent, so potentially deadly to human beings, but so incredibly beautiful. That's what we see in this story. Now, It's just a great story. It's just fun to imagine what you'd have been talking about to your mates on the way home from that wedding. It's fun to imagine what being seated at the same table with Jesus during the reception would have been like. It's fun to imagine what the bride and groom and their families must have felt like, the relief and the devotion and gratitude towards Jesus and Mary who set that in motion. It's fun to think about the relationship between Jesus and Mary. I'm going to think about all those things in a second. But I just want to hang, as I said earlier, on this idea of how you influence someone. See, leaders really want to know about how to influence people. Marketers really want to know how to influence people. Parents really want to know how to influence small people, particularly the ones that live at their house. How do you influence? How do you, how do you make people do things that they wouldn't otherwise do? Because that, that's kind of what leadership is, right? How do you change someone's mind or change someone's behavior, even slightly? And to me, it seems like there's... Of two categories of ways you might go about doing this. On the one hand, you might get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do through force, or even the threat of it, reward and punish, right? So it's like, if all people really just do what it is that serves their self-interest, then if I can set the rules, set the punishment, set the rewards in such a way that I force you to change your plan, then I can get you to do what I want you to do. That sounds very scary, but in some ways, all work is like that, right? I'm gonna give you my time and give you my obedience and you're gonna give me money in return. Uh, And if you weren't gonna give me that money, then I probably wouldn't do what it is you're asking me to do, but you're gonna reward me in a certain way and so I'll do it. And if I don't turn up for work enough times, I'm gonna get unpaid leave days and it's gonna cost my pocket and so I'm gonna enter into this deal with you where there's reward and punish and that influences my behavior, okay? That's sort of one category of how you might get someone to do what you want. And that can be fair or unfair, depending on whether it's kind of agreed upon. But there's another category of how you might influence someone, how you might lead them or convince them or or modify what their plan is. And these are really interesting to me. Okay, so one way that you might do this, uh, and preachers do this quite a lot, is um, you might give them a kind of vision, a picture of what's possible. So you kind of paint a beautiful picture of the future, um, and while you're painting this kind of inspirational, vivid picture of the future, you might throw a few hooks out. You might try and hook maybe a fear that they have and show them how this picture kind of deals with that fear. You might throw out a hook towards a a need that you know they have or some desire that they've actually got or some dream that's been bubbling away you suspect in the back of their mind and you sort of throw a little line onto that. You might reach out to some value that you think they hold or that they think they ought to hold or at least aspire to hold and go, well, if if you want to live like that, then then this picture ought to really inspire you. And as you throw vision towards people, you might get them to shift by however many percent the direction that they were going to take. And, and you can You can get them to admit, well, okay, you've told this picture so beautifully. You've told this story so beautifully. Like, okay, you've earned the right. I really want that. Uh, And so tell me what I should do. Okay, that's one way you might influence someone. Another way that you might influence them is a little less dramatic, but it's you might use logic. You might say, well, let me just show you how if you do this and this, it will result in that and that. But if you do this and this, it will result in that and that. And if I can connect with good logic, the end result to the thing you already want, then I can help you to do something you otherwise wouldn't have done. Okay? And then the other one, the final one, the one that's, for the purposes of this story, most interesting, is not to paint a beautiful picture of the future, it's not to use cunning logic to convince, certainly not to reward and punish, but it's to rely on relational connection. Right? That's another way that you influence someone. You say, okay, look, because it's me, will you do it? Um, because of how much connection we have? Because of the amount of relationship we have, will you go along with this idea? And that, I would argue, is what's gone on in this story. Mary has looked at Jesus and said, look, it's me asking. Uh, And I really know you and I trust your personality. And I also know that you really know me and you're really fond of me and that you care for me. And so not only do I see that you have compassion in you for this situation, but I also know that you have care for me. And so when I'm asking, I'm, I'm, I'm making a withdrawal on the relational credit I've built up with you. And I think it's so beautiful, if I'm right about this, that Jesus responds to that as much as to the circumstance. He's got compassion for the circumstance, but he's got connection with his mom. And that is what moves Jesus in that moment. That's fascinating. Because what that shows me is that this story is really about prayer. Anytime you've prayed, you know that what you're trying to do in prayer is either, if you're smart, in that conversation with God, allow him to change you so much that you end up moved from the situation you're currently in. But also, if you're honest, a lot of the time when you're praying, you're asking, you're hoping you move the heart of God so that he changes something external to you. And either of those results is great, right? If prayer ends up changing me, that's awesome. If prayer ends up changing my circumstances, that's awesome. So we're talking about influence. And this is one of those amazing moments in scripture where a human being has influenced God. And so we're gonna have a look at this story retold again. We're going to zoom in on that exact moment, that transaction, that, that split second when Mary makes a withdrawal on the connection she has with Jesus and reaches out to the compassion that she knows is in him and the care that he has for her and shifts not only the heart of God, but then the trajectory of this couple's life and history as a result. Enjoy it with me.
2: My son. Ah, Andrew, you see, even my old mother will join us in the song of Mary.
0: They've run out of wine.
2: But it's only the first day.
0: Yes, and it's all gone. Not a drop left.
2: Why are you telling me this?
0: We can't let the celebration end like this. And the Etcher's family humiliated.
2: Boys, uh, go join the others. I'll be right there. Mm.
0: you.
2: Fill these jars with water. I'm not sure you heard her clearly, but we've run out of wine. water. These are similar in size to your amphorae. The prudent marks, yes. Equally filled all the way to the brim. You're a very responsible person, aren't you? We are in a crisis and I was led to understand you have a solution. Do you know why jars for purification rites are made of stone? (laughs) What? You heard me. Because the stone is pure, less likely to stain or break, and it can't be made unclean, yes. Fill these jars with water all the way to the brim. Why? You heard him. Start drawing water, quickly. Tell anyone you find to stop what they're doing and help. From the directions you have provided, I see no logical solution to the problem. It's going to be like that sometimes, Thomas. What did you say? I do not rebuke you. It is good to ask questions. To seek understanding. There is no time for this. I know of a man like you in Capernaum. Always counting. Always measuring. That's my job, and that people will think I have not done well tonight. Join me, and I will show you a new way to count and measure. A different way of seeing time. Go with you Where? I don't understand. Keep watching.
0: Abner, I do hope you're enjoying yourself.
2: Where are the servers?
0: I don't know, but I'll go find them right away.
2: It is far past time for another round of wine. The last one was nearly an hour ago.
0: Yes, well, you see... Surely
2: there is more common, Dinah. Uh, uh, I'm very sorry. Please do not worry. This will be taken care of
0: immediately. Next round of wine right away. Thank you for reminding us, it's all on the
2: control. Was your father a stone mason as well? Smith. I think it broke his heart, but... I apprenticed under a stonecutter when I was nine. Every man must leave his father. Masonry seems like harder work. <laughs> it isn't harder, it's just more uh final. If the Smith wants to change the horseshoe or the plowshare or the pot hook, he has only to put the iron back into the fire and reshape it to fit his designs. Therefore. Everyone, please step outside. Just for a moment, Thomas. Once you make that first cut into the stone, it can't be undone. It sets in motion a series of choices. What used to be a shapeless block of limestone or granite begins its long journey of transformation. And it will never be the same.
0: just love that clip. I love watching the interaction between Mary and Jesus. And I think it's something that many of us maybe haven't thought about a lot, but who was this Mary, this a woman who was chosen above all others throughout history that God went, she's the one. She's the one to raise my son. Because I think we all appreciate that family rubs off on children so much. Um, our parenting rubs off on who people become. And so there must have been things about Mary that would have shaped what we see in the person of Jesus. I sometimes find myself watching my children and feeling a great sense of joy and pride at seeing them do something which reveals that they've understood things that we value in our home. And then other moments where I see or hear a tone or a comment that makes me realize that some self-adjustment is required because it's not um, the best thing that's rubbing off on my children. But who was this Mary? What do we know about her? And what do we see of her life and the character that we understand of her that leads to this moment that actually moves her son Jesus to do something? There are only four times that we actually hear and and see Mary speaking and engaging in scripture. And the first is really where we see her being um, approached by the angel, confronted by the angel, and we see her terrified. But so quickly, her her fear moves into a courage, which is burst of obedience and servant-heartedness. And so that was a part of her and the home that Jesus was raised in, this courage to be obedient and servant-hearted. Then the next time we come across Mary, is quite an incredible, uh, we learn quite a lot about her. She's chatting with her cousin Elizabeth, and she is newly pregnant with this child Jesus. And she sings a song which... I'm not sure that many of us realize how incredible the song actually was. It's called The Magnificat. And where we may have thought that Mary was this quiet, obedient, soft, kind of hymn book reading young lady, this beautiful piece of scripture, this psalm and song that she sings gives us a completely different understanding of Mary. This song was a protest song. It was revolutionary. Um, It it tells us of a woman who was deeply compassionate, who looked at the world around her, who saw the pain in people, the suffering, the injustice, and she was filled with a righteous anger about it. And so she sings this song, a revolutionary song that's been actually banned in at least three countries around the world because it speaks of rulers and oppressors who are evil being brought down and the humble being raised up. It speaks of God acting with justice to make sure that the poor and the humble are okay and that the mighty fall. It was considered a dangerous piece of scripture. And this is the Mary who we might have thought was this quiet, timid person who was filled with anger and fury at pain and injustice and seeing other people in shame and humiliation and just living a life that they felt they could never get out of. So that's the Mary whose home he was raised in. And then we come across Mary again uh, just after Jesus has gone missing for a whole day. And we see this moment where she actually rebukes him. And he says, but didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? They find him in the temple, she and Joseph. And then it says that he went back to Nazareth with them and he continued to be obedient. But this is the beautiful thing. It says, but Mary, his mother, treasured up all these things in her heart. And so here we have this understanding of this mom, this woman who sees the son just wanting to be in his father's home and also of being obedient to his earthly family. And so many other things that Mary would have seen in Jesus' life. And she stored these things up as treasures in her heart. We're going to get back to that in a moment. But the last time we see Mary speak is in the very clip that we've just seen, where she realizes with horror and with deep pain and compassion that this family is about to go through severe humiliation. They've run out of wine And this is the most terrible start that anyone could imagine to this young couple's marriage. And she is so deeply moved. She so wants to spare them of pain that she goes up and says to Jesus, please do something. There is no more wine. To which we find a fascinating response from him saying, it's not my time. I'm not going to do anything. But she kind of overrides that. It's fascinating. And she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And really, if those were the only words we obeyed in scripture, even that, if those were the only words, how much better would this world be if we all just listened to what he told us to do? So anyway, we see this moment where a miracle is ushered in. It's outside of Jesus' agenda. But what moved him to do this? I truly believe it was the compassion of his mom. He had been raised in a home with deep compassion. And what kicks this miracle into place is this faith that Mary has in her son because she has watched him. She's seen who he is. She's seen him pitch up in situations. And she has stored up these treasures in her heart, which leads her to have this incredible level of faith. Just recently, I chatted with a, a friend who was on the brink of losing her faith. And to be quite honest, if I was facing what she was facing um, at that point in terms of her health, I have to acknowledge that I could also have been um, floundering in my face. It was a deeply upsetting and scary, frightening thing that she was about to head into. And she just had almost lost the ability to believe that God still had the very best outcome for her. And when you're sitting with a friend and you're discussing something that you have not yet yourself faced, your words and your intentions can seem so shallow because you don't know how their valley feels. And so in that moment, I just knew that all we could do was treasure up the things into her heart that she'd already seen Jesus do. We remembered the words that had been spoken, the dreams that had been shared, the pictures that had been given, the scriptures that had spoken into her life and changed situations. And we just treasured up every way in which we had seen God move in her life and in in the lives of loved ones and rebuilt her faith. And I think that that's where so many of us are at today. For those of you floundering in your faith to do what Mary did and to store these things up in your heart. As we go back into watching the part of the clip where we actually see the miracle I'm just so reminded that what we're seeing play out here is the very words that Paul spoke to the Galatians when he said this, the only thing that matters is faith and faith expressing itself as love. And isn't that what we're about to see, what we all know already, that there was this moment of deep faith in Mary that she just said to the servants, do whatever he tells you and that she knew that she had the level of faith because of what she had seen in her son that something would happen to redeem this painful, humiliating, horrible situation. And it was birthed in the fact that it was an expression of love. And so as we watch this, I just want to encourage all of us to have our faith built again, to ask God where it is that he wants us to have compassion to express our faith as love. And may we all watch these moments, watch the beauty of this moment of kingdom breaking out in this wedding and the joy that comes with it, the peace and this beautiful look that we see mother and son share um, as they get to witness the goodness of the kingdom breaking into this moment and know that each of us can be involved in such kingdom moments as we have faith and we express it in love, born of compassion. Enjoy this clip.
2: Go draw some out and serve it to the master of the banquet. Let's have a taste. Stop the music! Stop the music! Everyone, listen! I have something I would like to say. I would like to address the bridegroom and the bride families. At every wedding I've ever overseen they serve the best wine first. And then, when the people have drunk freely, much later in the feast, they serve the poured wine, the cheap stuff.
1: <laughs> because by
2: then, who is going to notice? <laughs> Am I right? But you, you have chosen now to serve the best wine I have ever tasted. Let us thank them for this unnecessary but honorable gesture.
1: It's a a great end result, isn't it? But what have we actually said up until this point? What's Nat's taught us? What have we seen in this story? We've seen that not only was Jesus moved by His own compassion and by seeing compassion in His mother, but that somehow that was part of their connection as well, that some of the compassion and sense of, of fighting for the little guy that was in Mary has rubbed off on Jesus and they have this thing in common. And so Mary is both able to appeal to the, the character, the personality of the Jesus she knows because she's treasured it up in heart, that this is a, a man, a God who is moved by pain, who responds to suffering. She's able to rely on his personality. She's able to rely on his power. She's got faith in that. But she's also able to rely on this shared connection that they have, which is that she knows that she has possibly even instilled some of that in him. She knows that he appreciates that in her. There is some relational history, some relational currency between the two of them. It's an amazing story just to see what Jesus is like. But it's an instructional story, as I mentioned at the beginning, for us to discuss and learn something about the way we Pray, the way we speak to God about how we want to see His kingdom break into this world. Um, From when I first had uh, children, I didn't want to be that preacher who just always talks about his kids. (laughs) Um, But we've heard a fair amount about families and it's a mother-son story. So let's just go there, right? With my son, if I have to think about the vast majority of things he asks of me, I'm saying no. The vast majority of the time, parents are saying either, no, you can't have what you want, or stop doing that thing that you want to do. That seems to be, that outweighs the number of times I get to say, yes, go for it, hey, invite them into something. Because children are making mistakes, or they're a hazard to themselves, and we're trying to train them. So what's going on there? When I say no, when I have to resist his request, when I'm not influenced by my son, when no matter how much connection or whatever, he doesn't change my mind. Well, one of those reasons obviously would be if it's bad for him, right? If he's wanting something that's dangerous for him. And we know that when we ask God for stuff, if we ask in a way that's bad for us or not in accordance with his plans for us, obviously as a kind, protective parent, he's gonna say no. Another reason I might say no to my son if he asks me something is if I can't provide it for him, if I can't afford it, if it's outside of my power. Um, Famously, when I was a little kid, I always used to think my dad knew everything in the world and we would always ask him questions and he'd always have the answer. And then um, my brother and I at one point were scheming about putting a fighter jet ejection seat into a car and just hypothetically how you'd pull that off, you know, so that you could then press the red button and you know, boot someone out the passenger seat through the roof. And so, you know, it just casually goes, so dad, just like roughly how much does an ejection seat cost? And my dad I just... I don't know. Like, no, it doesn't matter if you don't know exactly, just like roughly. And my dad was like, I have no idea. I couldn't even begin to guess that it was like this crushing moment where we discovered that my dad had limitations, that there was something that he didn't know. But sometimes my son might ask me for something and it's just like, I just can't. That's less of a problem for God obviously. There's less stuff that he simply can't do, but it is still possible that I might be asking God for something and he's not saying no because it's bad for me. He's saying no because it's so contrary to his character. It's just something he just can't do for me. He's not, God can't sin. And so there's going to be some stuff perhaps that you're asking God for that's just off the table. But a lot of the time when my son asks me for something, the reason I say no is actually because I'm saying not yet. You're not ready for some reason, you're not ready for that thing. That might be just the obvious, I can't give you a car or a cell phone right now because you're two and a half. Uh, And so he simply just, as a function of time, will become ready. But more often, the interesting thing that goes on is that the way he's behaving, there's something about the assumptions he's bringing or the behavior he's bringing or the things he's doing in that moment. That means that if I was to reward that, I would be doing him harm. That Something needs to change in him first before I'm able to say yes to the thing he's asking for. I know this is sounding a little bit vague, but one of the things I'm forever trying to teach my son, and I don't think I'm some crackerjack parent, but I'm forever trying to teach him that he has some responsibility for our connection, that the health of our relationship is as much up to him as it is to me. We've been speaking up to now about how connection is one of the main ways you influence someone. I really want to keep influencing my son through connection. I don't want to have to flick back into reward and punish, right? I don't want to have to get back into you do what I say or else and force him to just just accept the fact that I'm going to dominate him and make him do what I want him to do because I'm not really setting him up to succeed, am I? I'm not setting him up to be an adult himself. I've learned a huge amount from Danny Silk, that parenting course that pretty much annually our church runs. And there's this idea that we're both involved in this relationship. And so I want to protect our connection. I don't want to just defeat you. Uh, And so I'm going to occasionally say, well, David, I want you to pick up your toys. We need to pick up your toys at the end of the day. Someone's got to do it. Uh, Are you going to pick up your toys? No, Dad, I don't want to do it. Okay, well, I'll do it for you if you like. um, But if I do this, then I'm not going to have energy to push you on the swing tomorrow. And he doesn't know that actually maybe my energy tank gets filled up a little faster than that, but that's fine. I I can live with that slight white lie. But I'm trying to let him know, you've got some choices to make. If I pick up your cars today, I'm not going to push you on the swing tomorrow. And then he has to decide, Flip out really love being pushed on the swing. And actually I can see it probably is my job to pick up my toys anyway. And I end up picking the cars up most of the time, but occasionally I come out looking like a hero um, and he ends up being able to make a choice that protects our connection. I'm going into this detail because God absolutely wants to lead you via connection. He wants to be able to rely on his relationship with you. And he wants you to learn to rely on your relationship with him. He wants you to come to him Knowing what he's like, knowing that he's good and kind and for you. So that then when the answer is no, your context for that is not, your assumption for that is not, he's just holding out on me. I'm just not good enough. He's not good enough. He can't, he's powerless, he's disinterested. But rather to enter into a conversation about, well, what does this mean for our relationship? Are you saying no because this is actually bad for me? Are you saying no because something inside me needs to grow first before this could be good for me? Uh, And in that conversation, you end up having the chance, as we said in the beginning, for prayer either to change you or for you to move somewhere in God, like my son is sometimes able to do, because it's not just the picking up cars on the swing thing. There are times when he's treating me or his mom badly, and I need to let him know, if you treat people badly, they're less likely to treat you well. And if I was to teach him otherwise, i will be doing him a disservice. And so as much as I'm always going to love him, I'm not always going to give him unlimited access to all the good things that he wants. Those two things are not the same. And there are times when David is just being a delight and he's being kind and I know that I can trust him with my heart and he's being caring to his mom or to me. And it's just a joy for me to give him good things. And there are other times when there is stuff that's gonna hurt him. I can see it's gonna hurt him. And for me to just reward that and go, well, you have unlimited access would be so irresponsible in that moment. Now, if a flawed, failed, really, most of the time, dwarf dad can figure that out then your good Father in heaven may very often be coaxing you, just inviting you into deeper relationship with Him so that He is able to lead you by connection. We know that in Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because if you want to come to Him, you have to know that He exists. You have to believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. We know that the new covenant that's described in Jeremiah 31 says that God wants to put it, something inside your heart that you no longer have to be taught and forced. You no longer have to be rewarded and punished. That the Old Testament was in some ways like like a nursery school for us, like a guardian when we were very young. But just like any parent wants to get away from reward and punish as fast as possible, God wants to move us away from reward and punish into a space where our connection with Him is so valuable to us that we're prepared to go, well, God, because it's you that's asking, it's a yes. Yes. And actually to realize that we're able to get to a place in our connection with God where we can say, God, because it's me that's asking, I'm going to expect that it's a yes. And if it's a no, I'm going to trust that the reasons it's a no are really good for me and really beautiful. My takeaway from this whole story as we close is that I want to develop connections with God. I want to develop some relational history with God. I don't want to just know about Him. I don't want to just find him impressive from a distance. I don't wanna just have faith in his power. I want to have intimate knowledge of his personality. I wanna have some history with him. So that when we're discussing how the kingdom is gonna break into my life and break into my circumstance, when I'm asking him things and asking him about things, it's not some sort of robotic, distant request form that I'm just putting in, but that I'm having this trusted, intimate relationship, the conversation a bit like the one Mary had. Because I know that God is moved by faith, he's moved by compassion and he's moved by connection. And so friends, if you're gonna do anything with me right now, I would trust that you're going to join me in examining my connection with God. Not just that I have right thinking about him, but that I have deep connection with him. That I'm feeling compassionate about the same things he's feeling compassionate about. Outraged by the same things he's feeling outraged about. Peaceful about the same things he's feeling peaceful about right now. That we can develop some history together so that those conversations are in that context, are in that intimacy. And then we can start to expect incredible results, either inside us or outside us, just like Mary saw. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see you as desirable. We see you just like those guests at the wedding saw you, as fascinating, and we long to be with you. And we recognize that you're powerful. We know that you can that you have, that you still will stretch out your mighty arm to save, to change things, to protect the vulnerable, to heal human history, that ultimately you are in control. We recognise your power. But Lord, we want to engage with your personality. We want to connect with your heart. We want to allow compassion to rise up in us and cause us to love the same things you love, to protect the same things you protect to feel peaceful about what you're peaceful about, to feel outraged about the things you're outraged about, to let your agenda become our agenda. Because we know that as we do that, there's this thrilling opportunity. There's this invitation you have to say, well, actually then our agenda can become yours too. That you want to lead us by connection just as much as we want to be connected to you. That you want to hear our prayers. That you want us to find you as we earnestly seek you, to ask you things in accordance with what we know your will is and to expect that your answer will be good for us, will be a resounding yes or a resounding not yet for wonderful reasons that we can enjoy. So right now, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you connect with your people by your spirit in their lounges, wherever they're watching this and that you fuse us to your heart, not just today, but that you change the trajectory of our lives as a result and that we would walk in step with you and enjoy that from here on on. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.